Welcome to Cloudy with a Chance of Trust, a podcast for digital transformation leaders where we discuss the latest cyber attack issues, enterprise security strategies, and current security events so that you can successfully accelerate network and security transformation. And now here's what's on our mind this week. Welcome back everyone to another episode of Cloudy with a Chance of Trust. This is going to be an interesting uh, episode for us. I'm going to actually turn it over to my friend and co-host, Lisa. Lisa has an announcement to make, and I think it's best to come from her. Thanks, Pam. So I'm starting another step on my own transformation journey, and I will actually be stepping away from tech to focus on family and friends and personal priorities. I've spent almost 30 years working in information technology, and I've seen so many changes. I started out on a help desk, and I still think that tech support is one of the most solid foundations for any information technology career, because you learn to troubleshoot, you learn to be a systems thinker, and you learn to interact with people who <laughs> usually have their hair on fire. I started out there, moved into InfoSec before we called it cybersecurity, did that across the public sector, the private sector for a few years. And then I made the transition to the vendor side. And that was honestly one of the best happy accidents of my life because I've been able to surf this wave of this incredible transition that's been brought by cloud and mobility. And it's been really meaningful to me to be part of delivering new solutions that help people work differently, help organizations accomplish their goals. I feel like I've had a chance to make a little dent in the universe, at least a very local dent. And so I'm going to take that and move on. I think for many of us, we will miss you immensely, but are so happy for your next journey or adventure. I think you all kind of get the gist. She's not saying that our word, but ultimately she's going to have fun. <laughs> you know, it, it will be an adjustment here at Zscaler for us. But Lisa, I think you touched on something. The poor help desk job is, is a great job, but it is so thankless. Yes. Right. Mostly people are calling to your point with their hair on fire. They're screaming, help me, help me. I got to get to something done. I have a deadline to hit, whatever it is. That is a thankless job. And thank you for doing it while you did it. And thank you to all those who do it today. But if you look back, you've had a phenomenal career and this is going to be one of those crazy questions. But if you had to pick something, what would be the biggest mind blow of your career? You've seen a lot of changes. You've seen a lot of advancements in technology. What do you think that would be? There's one clear standout, and it was making the transition from network-centric security to cloud-native security. I know I've told this story a million times, but the last five years before I was at Zscaler, I was with Juniper Networks and then spun off as Pulse Secure. I was a global NAC specialist. And if anybody said cloud to me as that started to become a thing, I honestly, I said, go away, possibly less politely, because I was really focused on security, firewall, VPN, and NAC. And delivering those technologies via the cloud felt to me like moving the same set of security issues to a rack that I couldn't reboot. Yeah, okay, you get elasticity, you get possibly more flexible deployment, but it introduces complexity. The attack surface hasn't really changed, it's just relocated. It took a long time for me to wrap my head around the advantages of a cloud-native solution like Zscaler. I came to Zscaler because I had worked with Manoj Apti, who was the chief strategy officer for Zscaler, one of the longest serving employees here. 
he reached out to me about a year before I made the transition. He said, you should come play with us. We are doing something unique. We're doing remote access with no inbound listener. And I got to be honest with you, he was messaging me on LinkedIn and I replied along the lines of, dude, if I didn't know you, I'd be blocking you here because how is that not snake oil? I had no context for that. It did not make sense to me to do remote access with no inbound listener. And that was when I started learning that if you build something on a cloud platform from day one, there are things that you can do that just aren't possible taking a traditional technology approach and doing a lift and shift. I was familiar with software as a service. I was even familiar with the concepts of infrastructure and platform as a service, but security as a service had never made sense to me for all the reasons I just mentioned. I had a lot of catching up to do, honestly. I had to go learn the models, the underpinnings of it. I had to learn about the shared responsibility approach. And I had to just get smarter about the whole cloud delivery environment so that I could understand then how do the problems of secure access, of context-based least privilege access apply in a world where you still have resources in the data center? Because people have been saying the cloud is going to kill the data center for years, and I don't see that happening anytime soon. The cloud is going to coexist with the data center for what I see as the foreseeable tech future, at least the next five to 10 years, probably. We're always going to have things that we need to access that are on managed infrastructure and things that we need to access that are on infrastructure that somebody else has managed. Finding a solution that gives you the flexibility to have seamless, consistent access across both those environments. And the other big thing it offers is modularity to apply a security solution, one use case at a time, or one user community at a time, or one resource group at a time. So when I was doing NAC, it was a fantastic job because I got to touch so many different things, desktop and network and talking to application owners. It's a generalist's dream. But the reality was that it was also kind of job security because NAC is really somewhat monolithic. If you're doing network admission control, then that implies that you have to control all of the admissions to your network. And that's a huge lift. So many of the projects that I would work on or assist on, they would start off with this great strategic initiative, and then we'd get 60 or 70 or even 80% of the way there and discover that that last 20% was just intractable. And the problem was that you couldn't really eliminate risk or even significantly reduce risk unless you protected your entire network. So being able to take those principles of least privilege access and context-based control and apply them in a way that's more decomposable. You know, we can eat the elephant one bite at a time instead of having to tackle an entire network problem space. I think all of those things were realizations that I had to come to sometimes painfully in my own time. And that's really been my focus here is helping to share that mental shift that I had to go through so that hopefully other people don't have to wrestle with it as much as I did, frankly. It's funny because there are still so many that are wrestling with it. And I think we're going to have to send that baton over to our colleague, Brett James, I think, to help those conversations like you have through the last five or so years here at Zscaler Release, because there's so many that still don't see the light at the end of the tunnel, that still doesn't see how can they do it. Yeah, and I think Brett is actually in some ways even better suited than I am to have that conversation because he lived it. He went through a deployment. He considered all the operational issues. I mean, as you did, you and I have always joked that I'm theory and you are practice. I know what's possible. You lived what's possible. Brett lived what's possible. I believe that that torch will definitely continue. And we'll introduce you all to Brett at another episode, but we wanted to kind of focus on Lisa. 
and the joys of what she's looking at after Zscaler. Lisa, again, you've had such a long career, right? And we're not aging ourselves because you're very young to be moving on in your career to now enjoy life. But if you could do something over again in your career, what do you think it would be if you look back? Oh, gosh, if there's one thing I wish I'd found sooner, there is a TED Talk by Simon Sinek, and it's about the golden circles. It's about start with why. His concept is so simple. When we communicate with people, and in particular, communicating around technology, I am super excited about not just what we built, but how we did it, how it's different, how it's unique, what makes it so fascinating. And I want to share that. And I will just fire hose you with that, frankly, if you give me any possible opening. What Simon taught me in that TED Talk, and he's got a book on this also, is people have to care to be willing to be hit with that fire hose, for that fire hose to be useful. So I have to start with why. I have to start with what can I find to make this relevant and useful and interesting to the person that I'm talking with? What are their interests? What are their concerns? What are their priorities? And then we establish that common ground, that shared problem space, that shared interest. Now I can tell you the way I look at it, what solutions we have. And maybe if I'm lucky, we can get to the how, but the how may not even be important. If we just start with why and then approaches, that's enough to get a lot of people along the way. And that was also part of the transition I made from a purely technical focused role to more of an executive conversation, to talking about and learning about the business aspects of technology adoption. I learned a little of it looking back when I was doing work with the Trusted Computing Group. We wrote a number of different standards around security automation and orchestration, around trusted network communication, around endpoint assessment and attestation and access control based on that. We wrote these standards and we published them and they were free and open, but adoption didn't really start until we started writing architect's guides. And the architect's guides, I realized looking back, were the why. Why would an architect be interested in this? What does it do for you? What does it make your life easier or enable you to do that you couldn't do before? Just putting all of that together, that's the piece that I wish I had focused on sooner. It made the technology that was so fascinating to me more relevant to the people around me. You know, that's really interesting because now looking at the point that you are a woman, when you look at how things have changed in IT for let's say minorities, women, and now we have to take into account those that don't define themselves by a typical gender binary. What have you seen through time in the industry from your perspective? Well, I think honestly, in some ways, being a woman in tech has driven me to get better at communicating because I have to prove myself every day. There are some assumptions that get made, and this goes all the way back. My very first conference I was attending with my manager, I was working for a small local telco and internet provider. And he and I were walking around Supercom. I think it was in Atlanta. I don't want to say what year. And we'd walk into a booth and I was wearing a nice shirt and nice pants. We would walk into the booth and I would ask a question and they would respond and talk to Mark. And the next day I'm like, okay, screw this. I brought a more casual vendor polo for hanging out in the evening. And I wore the vendor polo and I discovered that that at least got me acknowledged that I existed before they directed their answers to Mark. And 
to be fair, I was probably 20 and I probably looked 16 because I've always had that problem. So in some ways, given the composition of the IT industry at the time, it was not an unreasonable assumption, but it was certainly an annoying assumption. <laughs> I believe that things have improved on some axes. Women, minorities of any kind, we have more visibility, we have more support structures, more solidarity. A woman, an LGBTQ identifying person, a person who doesn't identify by a traditional gender, there are now employee resource groups, there's diversity initiatives, there are more ways to find each other and learn from each other. But unfortunately, we still have to, because in some ways we're still stuck in that past. There's still also a focus on telling, frankly, non-white male people what we need to do to succeed in IT. We need to lean in. We need to speak up rather than acknowledgement that organizations need to stop tolerating the kind of behavior, both individual and institutional, that makes it harder for some people to succeed in the field and that frankly makes people leave the field. I've always, I was raised by my father to challenge being put into a box, being told what I could and couldn't do. That backfired on him when I was a teenager. Who are you to tell me what to do, huh? But it's really helped me a lot in my career because when I was, for example, a principal solution architect at Pulse, I would walk in a room and stand up at a whiteboard and I knew the first thing I had to do was demonstrate my technical chops because otherwise people wouldn't be listening. You get used to putting yourself out there every day. And there are a lot of people who don't want that kind of challenge, who don't want to have to prove themselves over and over and over again in front of every whiteboard or in every conversation. I think there's still a long way to go there. And I think that all the diversity initiatives in the world are not going to succeed if, number one, they're put on the backs of the people who need to benefit from them. We're already working harder. Now you're giving us this extra effort. And number two, they're focused on telling us what we have to do rather than building systems and structures to support us and to weed out some of the bad behavior. If you have a jerk in your environment and that jerk is making people's lives difficult, supporting the people whose lives they're making difficult is one thing. Getting rid of the jerk is the answer. That jerk could be male or female, any race. It's a matter of supporting the behavior that we want to see. And there's so many studies about how diversity makes for stronger teams and more business success. So I hope that the field will continue to improve in those areas rather than just telling us what we need to do to be better individually. And I think that's where the younger generation is also helping that. The younger generation seems to have a different view on it than, say, more of the middle-aged generation. I think they'll help us move along that way too. Sure, they're growing into a very different business environment. It's hard to break the habits of years or decades, and I recognize that, but I also see people who've done the work to break those habits. I know it's possible, and I do judge. I judge you if you're willing to do the work or not. Absolutely. So if you had to think about who are some of your role models and what did you learn from them through the course of your journey here? My first role model, my fundamental role model is always my mother. Mom grew up in Chicago. She was the daughter of a Polish family. She was the second generation born in the U.S. They were factory workers. And in the time that she was raising us, she went out, got her own job. She ended up working first for the radio station and then for the computer center at Davidson College. 
without a college degree, worked her way up to become a director of academic computing at Davidson. And she would be the first to tell you she wasn't the most technical person. My dad was the one who was really into computers and tech, but she was amazing at managing technical people. And that is a black art. The biggest thing I learned from her, though, people I've heard talk about having a what would Jesus do bracelet to remind you how you want to live your life. I have an invisible what would mom do bracelet. I take after my father. My dad was Italian. He was loud. Imagine, you know, the Calvin and Hobbes comic strip. Imagine Calvin, but Italian and grown up. That was my dad. If he had a thought, you heard it. If he had an emotion, you experienced it. And you've seen, you know, that's me. So absolutely, my friend. And what I learned from my mom is I have an invisible what would mom do bracelet to remind me that I need to shut my mouth and think sometimes that I need to consider what perspective the other person is coming from, that sometimes not tackling something head on is the best approach. She really taught me to temper my emotion with pragmatism and kindness. And then as an adult, in a completely different way, she was diagnosed with MS, multiple sclerosis in her mid-30s. And she has the variant that is a slow, chronic deterioration rather than sharply punctuated losses of function. So she has been losing physical function for almost four decades now. She now gets around with a walker. There are things she can't do. She's got some fine motor issues. And she has just accommodated her life to her abilities. But in her retirement... Her attitude about things is that if someone invites her to try something new, unless she thinks it is physically impossible for her, or unless it's something she knows that she doesn't enjoy, she says, yes, my mother came to Burning Man with us five years ago. Limited mobility and limited heat tolerance. Let's go ride bicycles in the middle of the desert for a week in August. We talked about it as a family. We planned it for months. We got an RV. We built an infrastructure that made it possible for her, and she embraced every minute of it. So my mom is absolutely my fundamental role model. My second role model would be Radia Perlman, and I do not know her personally. I met her once. We were all at a lunch together. I was honestly too starstruck to say anything. I think I just said, oh, my God, I've always been. You? Oh, yes. (laughs) She represented for me a woman who was deeply technical. I mean, she invented spanning tree. That was basically fundamental to networking, but she was involved in so many areas of standardization for networks. She really represented a trailblazer, a woman who could succeed in tech, who could absolutely be as smart and as technical as a man, and who was also incredibly kind, very funny, She was super easy to talk to at the table if you weren't tongue-tied. I've always considered her my abstract role model. And then my third role model over these past few years has been you. I met you. (laughs) I met you as a customer. You were leading a global networking initiative. You'd been doing it forever. You clearly had in your head a grasp of everything that went on in that environment You were running large teams, but in a way that those teams were clearly working independently, working well, you were like the conductor of an orchestra. When we were having those eight or 10 hour planning meetings for that transition, it was just so clear that everything was a well-oiled machine. And the longer I looked at that, the more it was clear that it was well-oiled because you were orchestrating it. Then when you came here, 
And I discovered that you were not only all that, but the best friend I have here and a big sister to me, your work ethic, your no shit approach. I don't know if I can say that on this podcast, but I just <laughs> We're going to say it. <laughs> <laughs> and your friendship. So thank you. You have been a huge influence on me and I, I love you. I love you too, my friend. And that was very kind. As you all can see, she kind of choked me up there because I sure didn't expect that. So thank you. And you will be a friend forever. Definitely. Okay. So if you had any words of advice for our listeners who are earlier in their careers, what would it be? There's a few things in addition to start with why that I wish I had also known sooner. One of them is learning how to communicate effectively. That has been a lifelong project for me. I recently discovered a group called Power Speaking. They are at powerspeaking.com. They do monthly free presentations. And then I think they also do corporate consulting. They've done one on the power of storytelling that really grabbed my attention. I've been working my way through their back catalog on YouTube. And fundamentally, communication is the key to everything we do. If we can't communicate around an idea, a suggestion, a challenge, then we're never going to get the benefits of working together to accomplish something. I wish I had had something like power speaking when I was just starting out because it would have saved me a lot of the miscommunications. And I look back on areas where I could have been much more effective if I had known some of those techniques. So that's one is communication. The second one is, and this is something I've never had a problem with, but it's something that I wish I had shared with people earlier in my career. There's a website, Status451, and one of the authors is an acquaintance and someone else I look up to in the field, Meredith Patterson. Meredith wrote a blog entry called Dumber Than Socrates, and it is my touchstone. The basic point is that in the Socratic dialogues, the discussion is often driven by people asking questions. And there are two kinds of people asking questions. One is the jerk who's trying to catch Socrates out, and he generally gets put in his place. But the other is the honest, open-minded learner who asks a question that gives Socrates the opportunity to explain something. I believe that a lot of times people are afraid to ask questions because we're afraid to expose our ignorance, we're afraid to be vulnerable, we're afraid to put ourselves out there. For whatever reason, and I probably get this again from how I was brought up, I have never been afraid to ask the dumb question, the challenging question, you know, I figure if I'm thinking it, somebody else in the room might be thinking it. I know that it has given my managers fits. Dan, I appreciate all of your guidance on how to do that more diplomatically because that was not my forte. But being willing to ask questions and then possibly my corollary on that is when somebody gives me the answer back to try to reframe it back to them in my words to see whether I understood it. It's kind of an active listening thing. So it's asking the question and then active listening the response. And then the last thing would be just being open to opportunities and working hard to put yourself in the path of opportunities. I started out on third base. I am white. I am middle class. I got a great education with no college debt because mom worked at the college. And I had parents who raised me to believe I could do anything I set my mind to. But on top of all that good fortune, I have worked really hard. And I've also tried to make as many connections as possible. I feel like a lot of people took chances on me and I've tried really hard to make them proud. If you asked me at any point what I thought I'd be doing or what I wanted to be doing in five years, if you asked me what I wanted to be doing, I'd say, I love what I'm doing. I want to be doing this. 
every time I've made a change, someone else has pushed me to make that change. The trick is being open to being pushed too sometimes. And sometimes it's being pushed in a non-comfortable way. Sometimes being uncomfortable is a really good thing, even though it puts us, it gets us out of our comfort zone. Yes. So we're kind of winding down here. This has been awesome. It kind of gives everybody a look into Lisa. And I think everybody's kind of wondering, Lisa, what are you going to do with your time? I mean, we're not saying the R word. However, what are you going to do with all your time? Yeah, well, first of all, I'm going to figure out who I am when I'm not thinking about zero trust so many hours a week. But we have a list. Um, One of my colleagues, Pat Perry, gave me the perfect framing for this. You know, the concept of a honey-do list? Well, my husband, he left Tanium two years ago, and he's actually been encouraging me to follow him out for those two years. We have a honey-we-can-do list. That is awesome. I know, right? I love it. We are big outdoors people. We're going to climb every five, seven in the continental U.S. I'm going to get a little pickup truck that can pull a pop-up camper and we're going to drive around and we're going to climb and hike and rappel and cave and mountain bike, maybe start paddling again. Basically, anything that doesn't involve screens. (laughs) If you want to find me, you can look for me on top of a rock or under one. But I do intend to keep up with my friends in the industry. I intend to keep an eye on all the cool things that Zscaler is doing because the opportunity cost of walking away is there's so many exciting things going on that I will miss being a part of. And I intend to at least watch them from the sidelines and cheer. That's great. Any last thoughts for our listeners? I thought about this and I thought about saying, don't be afraid, but I'm afraid all the time. I am afraid to take chances. I am afraid of public speaking. I am afraid of looking stupid. And so I'm not going to say, don't be afraid to follow your dreams. I'm going to say, be afraid and do it anyway. The things that make me uncomfortable have turned out to be the things that I benefited most from the long run. This goes all the way back. I was a systems engineer at Juniper and the head of the solution architect team, Jim McComb, he came to me and he said, hey, we've got an opening on the solution architect team. I think you should join us. And I said, you got to have the wrong person. That's where the wizards are. And he said, how do you think you get to be a wizard? He believed in me. He gave me the opportunity. I didn't think that I was at that level, but I trusted him. And he and that team helped me get there. And that is a pattern that has repeated throughout my career. So be afraid and do it anyway. Well, with that, I have to say, I think I speak on behalf of Zscaler in the industry. Thank you for everything that you have contributed. Thank you for your friendship. You have had an impact on the industry, on Zscaler, that which we provide to our customers, also to the future of Zscaler. And for all of us personally here at Zscaler, I know we will all miss you immensely. We wish you the best, nothing but happiness, peace, and love. And for our listeners, stay tuned to future updates. I think what we're going to do is we're going to have a couple guest co-hosts on future episodes, and there'll be more to come. Take care, everyone. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Pam. It's been a pleasure and a privilege and a wild ride. And I'm looking forward to hearing those future episodes and what you do next. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Cloudy with a Chance of Trust. Check back with your podcast provider regularly for more episodes. You can find Lisa Lorenzen and Pam Kubiatowski on the CXO Revolutionaries website at revolutionaries.zscaler.com or on LinkedIn. Statements by Zscaler podcasters and guests are informational only and should never be construed as legal advice. 
You should consult with your legal advisor on matters related to you or your business. Zscaler makes no warranties, express, implied, or statutory as to the content of this podcast, and it is provided as is. Content on this podcast may contain forward-looking statements that are current as of the date of recording and subject to change. These statements are subject to the safe harbor provisions created by the Private Securities Litigation Reform Act of 1995. Full legal disclaimers are available at revolutionaries.zscaler.com. Copyright 2022.